we're actually going to be in Haggai chapter 1 because of the chronology and the way things fall. Let's uh, stop and pray for a minute. Lord God, thank you for the opportunity now to open your word and to look into it and study it. Give us uh, understanding. Help us to see uh, what we need to do as a result of studying this passage together today. We ask this in your name. Amen. And I forgot to mention it earlier, but uh, Dan and Florina are here all the way from Mexico. And uh, they're visiting. They're right over there in the middle. We want to make sure you have some time to catch up with them. Are you guys going to be able to stay for lunch? Sure. See there. You get a chance to catch up. So, so you know what? That's really a nasty thing to do. Ask someone publicly if they can do something. <laughs> I'm sorry. Didn't mean to put you on the spot. <clears throat> If you felt like you're just not going anywhere, like in your spiritual walk, it just, nothing seems to be working. Um, you put in effort, you put in time, and yet for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem to be doing anything for you. Um, that's something that we, we all hit from time to time, times when we think, oh man, I'm just kind of, I'm not doing much here. And, and, um, and, Think about those times when you've been greatly challenged spiritually, when something grabbed a hold of you in such a way that you went, wow, that's, that's amazing. That's incredible. Um, I remember a number of years ago, um, when we were still in Detroit, I used to take um, summer trips to Mexico with a lot of teens and adults. And one group we took, uh, uh, one of the gentlemen on the trip, one of the leaders, really seemed to be impacted by the trip and the speaking that was being done and all the things. <clears throat> and it really changed him dramatically. He came to me and said, I've got some things I want you to kind of keep me on, you know, keep, keep account with me. Um, so please check up on me in these areas. And so I said, yeah, I'd be happy to do it. We got home and, and all of a sudden it was like none of that happened. Um, he had been doing some really cool things. God was speaking to him, touching his heart. And then whether he just said, okay, that's enough, I don't know. I never did find out. He just kind of slid back into the, well, I'll come to church on Sundays, and that's my thing. People in Haggai's day were fired up. That's why you read the first part of Ezra this morning. They were fired up to go to Jerusalem, and they were going to build the temple. They were going to reestablish the sacrifices. That's why they were returning. And in that first couple of lessons that we did in Ezra, remember that they got there and they built the altar itself and started offering sacrifices. They made the um, foundation for the temple, and they dedicated it. And then it all stopped. Let's go ahead and put that uh, chart up there, if you would, please. This is just kind of a, a rough timeline. So Cyrus issues the decree that people can go back. And then <clears throat> Zerubbabel. Remember, there were three um, times that people were deported, three different times. And as you look at the return, there are three separate returns of people who come back. And so the first return was under Zerubbabel. And um, 
they, they're the ones that did that initial, yeah, get that altar going, let's get the, the foundation made, and then the work stops. Um, it is about 18, 16, 18 years in there before they get back up into it again. And, and then <clears throat> Ezra comes 22 years later, and then Nehemiah comes after that. And uh, the number of people that come, there's 50,000 in the first, there's four or 5,000 in the second, and another 50,000 with, uh, with Nehemiah. So really a little, little less than 100,000. Out of all the people that were in exile, all the people who had, you know, multiplied, they were all over the place, and only that number came back. It's an interesting thing when you think about it. It seems that people got comfortable. Many of them became business people. Many of them were part of the foundation of the empire. I mean, they served functions in various ones of the um, <clears throat> various places that the kings needed all officials, and so they served in those capacities. Like Daniel, remember Daniel served for 70 years in, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. But I just was starting to think about that. Why so few? Why didn't more of them come back? And all those reasons may be part of them. But let's jump in and see where we go from here. So we're studying Haggai because Haggai and Zechariah were the ones that impacted the people to get back on track, to start building once again. So verse 1, on August 29th, <clears throat> August 29th of the second year of King Darius, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai. Now, if your translation says something like on the first day of the year of the when they did all the math and figured that out, it would have been August 29th. And so the Lord gave a message through Haggai to Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. And this is what the Lord says down there in verse 2. And he's quoting the people. God is quoting the people. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. The people are saying, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Okay, now remember, 18 years before, or 14, 16 years before, that's why they came, to reestablish the altar, to build the temple, and get worship going once again. And now, 14, 15 years later, they're saying, it isn't time yet. It's not the time to rebuild the house of God. So something changed, something happened in them. There was persecution, there were people trying to stop them. Lots of letters were sent to, to the, you know, the emperor or the, or the king saying, hey, these people are doing these things. And um, their attitude got down to, okay, well, maybe it isn't time. Um, and look at verse 4. Why are you living in luxurious houses? Why my house lies in ruins. That's quite the question, isn't it? He's saying to them, hey, you came back to build the temple. Instead, you're working on your houses and they're gorgeous and they're luxurious. And some places it talks about their paneled walls. 
So they were even making their walls be, their stone walls were being covered with paneling and all kinds of things to make it luxurious. There's an <clears throat> implication here. Time had not yet come. How could that be? They were came for that. Um, God miraculously brought them back. They had all the gold from the temple. They had all the things that Nebuchadnezzar had taken. And I don't know if maybe, they, maybe what they meant was, I, I don't have time right now. I'm busy. I'm, I'm doing this stuff on my house. I got to work on my, on my, um, grape harvest. I've got to work in, in the fields. I've got to check out my livestock. Or maybe, well, we just don't have sufficient resources to finish the temple. Again, they, they had plenty of things that came with them. Or maybe it was just that they were putting themselves, their ideas, and the things they wanted ahead of what God wanted. They knew why they came. They knew what they signed up for. They understood the purpose of them coming back was to build the temple, establish the worship, and start living as the nation of God again. So that's that's kind of where all that... <clears throat> they're kind of thinking through all those kinds of things. And I was thinking to myself, do we ever make those kinds of excuses? Do we ever say, well... Yeah, this week I just don't have time to to think about God or do anything that would draw me closer. I I just don't have time. How many times do we take the things that we do on a daily basis and make those things more important than even just a small amount of time with the Lord? Or maybe I have to finish my education. I need to get married. I need to be settled in my career. I need to be successful. And then I can give God some time. Tony Evans one time said, he'd been to a lot of people's bedside when they were dying. He never heard anyone say, boy, I wish I'd spent more time at work. Anyway, just just to help us think a little bit, I had a friend in Colorado who um, absolutely loved taking care of his cars. He had some very nice cars, and you could always see him washing and polishing and all that kind of stuff that he did with his cars and his motorhome and the deck on the house. I mean, everything was pristine. It was immaculate. And don't get me wrong, I'm not upset with him or jealous of him, but he's the kind of guy that could do any of that stuff and love doing it. But he told me one time, I just... I sit down and open my Bible and there's just, I don't get it. I, I don't understand it. And I tried offering some help, but it was mostly, I think the fact was that was hard for him to sit and just do some thinking and some praying. And it doesn't have to be very, very long. The Lord isn't saying to us, you need to get up at 4.30 in the morning and spend three hours in devotions. I'd be dead if that's what God wanted. Seriously. But the Lord does want us to think about him and and to focus on him and to live our lives knowing that we are walking in his presence no matter where we are, no matter what we do. And so I think part of that's what's going on here. Let's go ahead and jump into the next few verses. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies say, verse 5. You have planted, well, look at that. (laughs) You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, 
but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but can't keep warm. Your wages disappear, though you, as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happened to you. Now go up in the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. And then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. And so the Lord of Heaven's armies, which is also just the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, uh, the God, the commander of Heaven's armies, all of those titles are titles for God himself. And he says, listen, I want you to look at what's happening to you. Consider your actions. Um, just think through what, what is happening in your life. There's lots of activity, lots of effort. You're doing all these things, but there's nothing being gained by them. Um, on one level, I think what God is saying is there's some things happening right now that aren't good things. And you should be thinking about why. Why are those things happening? Why is it that we plant much and harvest little, eat, but aren't satisfied? All of those things. And then in verse 7, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says, look at what is happening to you, or give careful thought to your ways. And I think what he's trying them to get them to see is that the way that they are behaving, the way that they are acting, is impacting what happens in their lives. Because the Lord had told Israel, if you follow and serve me, I will bless all these things. And yet right now, you've got 14, 15 years have gone by, and they've totally ignored God, ignored the temple. And, and God is saying very clearly, you are under my judgment at this point. You are suffering and I'm not blessing you because you aren't doing what you are supposed to do. You're worried about your own house, but God's house is still a pile of rubble. So he says, go, get the materials and build the temple of God. Verse 9, you hope for rich harvests, but they were poor. Uh, when you harvest what you harvest at home, I blew it away. And so he's just talking about what he's done. Why, God says, why, verse 9, because my house lies in ruins. The temple is still a pile of rubble. And he's saying, that is not why you came back. You came back to build the temple. So verse 10, it's because you have, you, because of you, the heavens withheld dew and the earth produces no crops. I've called for a drought on all your fields and hills. So God is making it very clear. You have a choice here. You can choose to obey and honor me, in which case I will bless you, and there will be dew and there will be crops, and you'll have all that you need, or you can choose to disobey. And if you disobey, remember, this is the nation of Israel, a very unique and special relationship with God. And God said, if you disobey, then you will suffer the consequences of your disobedience. So, again, it's just one of those things where you're looking at you go, wow, because of what you have been doing or not doing, you're reaping these consequences. There's an implication here for us. In my 
in my family, New Year's <clears throat> was a time when you kind of stopped and reflected on the past year, and you thought about it and wondered what things you could have done better than you did, and maybe think ahead about what are we going to do next year. Verse 7 says this, This is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. Go back and look at how you're living. Go back and look at what you're living for. Think about it. Think about your relationship with me. Paul put it this way. I find this kind of an interesting, interesting verse, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Second Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. <clears throat> Test yourselves. Or do not, or do you not realize this about, this about yourselves, that, Je- that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you have failed to meet the test. Now, there are people who have taken these, this verse and assumed that it's about security of salvation. That you need to examine inward to see if you're saved. And I think that's a mistake. I think what this is all about is to remind us that, hey, you know, yes, you, you need to look at how you're walking, all that kind of thing. But the assurance of salvation comes from the Word of God. Um, that's why, you know, we say examine yourselves. Well, see, yeah, take a look, see what's going on. Understand where your, where your walk is. Understand what's happening in your life. Like the Lord said to the people of Israel, hey, what you're going through, think why that's there. Think about how that happened. But here when Paul says examine yourself, he's not saying examine yourself to see if you're saved. He's saying examine yourself and see if you are walking the way you should. Examine yourself and see if you are growing the way the Lord wants you. This is a a quote I found helpful. Assurance of salvation comes first and foremost through the Word of God. When Paul told the Philippian jailer, he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so there was a very clear statement. You do this, you believe, and this will happen. Based on what? The Word of God. Based on the promises of God. And so the moment that we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we know that from that point on, because of the authority of the Bible, we are born again. If we put our faith and trust in Him, then yes, we now become believers. We become Christians. Um, Romans 8 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not a great verse. I love this verse. I mean, I'm not condemned. I'm not condemned because of the things I do. I'm not condemned because I give so much money to church. I'm not condemned because of... No, it has nothing to do with that. There's no condemnation for me because when I believed in Jesus Christ that He died for me, He took a residence in me. And so Christ is in me. And I'm in Him. And there's this mystical, wonderful thing that's going on and we are not condemned because we are in Christ and so when we think about salvation and security of salvation we need to go to those kind of places where we say okay examine yourself sure figure out how you're walking walk like you need to based on God's word but the security of your salvation is based on the word of God believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved he put it there 
And it's, it's not something that we can change. That's the reality. So when we're thinking through these things, again, maybe it's time that we give thought to our ways. And let me just put it this way. Um, what are we programming in our lives each day? What are we doing in our lives each day? Um, this is a quote from Randy Alcorn. Today's decisions determine who you will be tomorrow or what you will be tomorrow. Um, let me just make it real simple. So I get up tomorrow and decide that I need some money. So I go down to the bank and I hold them up and get a bunch of money. That decision is going to have a huge impact on my life. Now, not all of them are like that. Not all of them are irredeemable. There are many that we make it and we blow it, and yet God restores us in His grace. But it's it's that take, be careful and think through, because the decisions that we make many times do impact what happened to us down the road. And that's in any aspect. I've uh, been around long enough to notice that the older a person gets, one of two things happen. They either get nasty and cranky and critical, or they just become sweeter and more loving and tolerant. And boy, I hope that's the direction I'm going. I don't want to be going the other direction. Um, what, what causes that? Well, I think in many cases it's something that maybe nobody had ever noticed, but it's underneath something maybe that's hidden that they've been able to keep away from people. And as they get older, more and more of those filters come off. I knew a Christian man who had been in ministry for many years <clears throat> eventually got to the point where he could no longer take care of himself. So he's in a nursing home. Uh, it was a Christian nursing home. Within a week, there were no nurses that would go in by themselves to this man's room because of the sexual innuendo and the horrible things that he would say to them. Now, he would never been that way in life that we knew. He, he had a secret life, apparently, that nobody knew about, that now was coming out. This is what he had been into all of his life. The other side of the coin, Carol and I visited an older lady at one point, and she was in a nursing home, and many times she didn't really understand everything that was going on. But Carol had known her since she was a little girl. So we went to see her and Carol <clears throat> sat down. They told her who Carol was and she, her eyes kind of gl- glimmered. You thought, oh, okay, she, she knows who Carol is. But within a couple of seconds, that just kind of went away. And you knew she wasn't understanding anymore. But she reached down and she took Carol's hand and she patted it and said, honey, do you know Jesus? Amen. How cool is that? And when the filters come off, that's how I want to be. And, and see, why is that? Because in all of her life, she was that way. All of her life, she was investing in other people. All of her life, she was asking people, Honey, do you know Jesus? Decisions we make today become patterns, become habits, and can lead in directions we don't want to go. So we need to examine our own selves when it comes to the decisions we're making, the directions we're going. Consider ourselves in light of God's word, in light of what he wants. 
and then move forward in the direction that God's leading. Let's move on to verses 12 to 15. So Haggai comes and he really lets them know, hey guys, the Lord wants you to know it's time to stop playing with your houses and making them fancy. Get back to the temple and build it and get it functioning. Zerubbabel, son of <clears throat> Zerubbabel and Joshua, um, the governor and the high priest, went to the remnant of the people and began to obey the message from the Lord their God. So they got the message. Haggai got through to them. And they said, you know what? We need to do this. We need to get up and we need to get going and build the house of the Lord. We'll put our other things away, put other things to one side and build what we came here to do. And so they began to obey the messages of the Lord. When they heard the word of the prophet, Haggai, verse 13, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the people this message. The Lord said, I am with you, says the Lord. You're rebuilding my house. And by the way, there was always somebody trying to stop them. There was always some kind of persecution. There was always somebody in the surrounding area who didn't want them to do these things. And the Lord was saying to them, okay, you're building again. Someone comes and tries to, to persecute you or stop you. Remember, I am with you. I am with you. And so the Lord, I love this, sparked the enthusiasm of Zerubbabel, the governor, and then the enthusiasm of Jehua, and the enthusiasm of the whole remnant of God's people. So the thought seems to be that everybody now showed up again, and here we are, and we're going to clean the rubble away, and we're going to start building on that foundation which we have and on September 21st of the second year of Darius's reign is when they started rebuilding again. Um, I love that when the Lord began to spark enthusiasm. You know, it's called stirring them up or energizing them. The Lord energized them and um, got them to begin to work again on the temple of God. Now, this is 16 years after the foundations have been laid and dedicated. So 16 years when people just kind of said, man, you know what, it's too hard or we can't do it. But uh, 16 years and now they're once again, they're building the house of God. So <clears throat> they obeyed, this is just kind of an implication here, I think. They obeyed God and God in his grace said to them, remember, I am with you. Remember. I am with you. The same wording is also all through the Old Testament. Isaiah 41.10 Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. Isn't that awesome? You read a verse like that and you go, Okay, I can climb any mountain. I can build anything. Why? God's with me. God's with me. And that was the whole point of what Isaiah was saying. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be discouraged. I'm with you. I'm going to strengthen you because I'm with you. And I will hold you up 
with my victorious right hand. Remember that the hand, the right hand was considered the hand of power, the hand of victory. And God says, with my right hand, I'll take care of this for you. Just reminded his people, here it is, God reminded his people. The next one, please. There we go. Refuse to give in to fear. That's one of the things he's saying. You're going to have this all through the time you know, Nehemiah was going to come build the walls. They tried to stop that too. But just, I want you to remember, don't give in to the fear. They're going to be against you. They're going to try to accuse you. But remember, I'm with you. You have nothing to fear. And then, do not be discouraged. It's really easy to say. Not super easy to do. But it's interesting. God says, don't be discouraged. Why? Again, I am with you. I'm with you. And keep on going. Don't quit. Why? I am with you. And the third statement, I think, is get on with the work. I'm with you, okay? Here I am. My presence, my strength, my power are yours. Get to work. Do what God's called you to do. Jesus also reminded us of those same things in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commandments I've given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always. It keeps coming back, doesn't it? He sends out his disciples to make more disciples and to train them to make disciples. And he said, teach them the word of God, help them to pursue me and to walk with me. And no matter what comes, Paul, if you're going to be in jail, I'm with you. Paul, if you're going to get whipped five different times for all of these lashes, I'm with you. No matter what it is, Jesus is saying, whatever you go through, I am with you. God doesn't always take away those things, like the things that Paul went through, the things that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are going through, even now in the Middle East. But he does give the strength and remind them that I am with you. And that's something to hang on to at all times. Another way of saying it, uh, saying I'm always with you, is to say I will never leave you. And that's where we are in Hebrews Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money. That kind of goes back right to Haggai, doesn't it? Hey, you're building all these pretty houses and you got everything you want. But you haven't built my house. Here it says, Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I am with you always. So as we obey, we can remember God says, I'm with you. I'm giving you the strength and the ability to obey. And as we seek to grow spiritually, he says, I will never leave you. I'm right there with you all the way. And as we face difficulties, he's saying, I will not abandon you. I will not leave you alone. You will never face anything in this life. I will never face anything in this life alone. We are always in His presence. He is always with us. 
I am with you. Powerful words. What do we take away from all this? The Israelites have been saying, hey, you know, I've got to get my house fixed up. Let's go to the next slide, please. Thank you. This is Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah, just a little bit later when the walls have been rebuilt. Way at the top there, you see the temple, uh, top right-hand corner, after it had been built. This is the most visible spot in all of Jerusalem because it's in a high place, the highest place of anything around. So every day when they got up and walked around, they'd see the rubble. There's a pile of rubble there. There's a bunch of stuff that hasn't been done there. Isn't that interesting? They saw it every day. They saw it every day. And yet, for 16 years, that's not time. It's not time. No, we're not going to do this. The next quote, or the next picture, is uh, the tabernacle. Um, why in the world did God ask for this? Why did He ask for the tabernacle and then later on in Jerusalem the temple which Solomon built? Look at Exodus 25 8. He says to Moses, then have, <clears throat> have them make a sanctuary for me. I will dwell among them, building, I will, and I will dwell among them. So in Exodus, he says, I want you to build this tabernacle, and, and I want you to build it so that my presence will be with the people. And if you remember how they set up the camps when they camped, this was in the middle. Everybody else was around. So the center of life for the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness was God and the temple. And that's why God had them build the tabernacle. Build the tabernacle, put me right there, surround the tabernacle with all of the tents and all the places you'll be living. And remember, I am with you, and I will be with you at all times. First Kings 11. Why did God have Solomon build the temple? The word of the Lord came to Solomon as his te- <clears throat> for his temple. You are to build, if you follow my decree, carry out my regulations, keep my commands and obey them. I will fulfill through you the promise I gave David that the Davidic line would keep going, that the Messiah would come from that line. And then verse 13, why the temple? I will live among the Israelites, I will not abandon my people. So you have that whole thing going on. Now, why was this so important? This quote, I think, helps us see that the temple, the tabernacle, were a visible sign. They were obvious proof that God was with them. When they went to that place, they knew they could meet with God. That was the whole point of that. Now, we live in a time frame when God's working differently than that. When the people of Israel refused to build the temple, they were saying, it's okay if you're not here. Stop and think about that. That's what the people who were supposed to be rebuilding it during Ezra's time, on one level, they're saying, yeah, well, we don't have to hurry about this. It's okay if God doesn't live with us. 
Imagine putting it in that kind of a term. But that is kind of what they were doing. And then the temple was a place that showed God's presence in a special way. Excuse me. <clears throat> now, in the New Testament, God's not interested in tabernacles or temples that are built covered with gold, uh, aligned in certain positions. That's not what we have anymore. The church, the believers, we have become his, his temple. He indwells us. And so there's a whole different thing going on now. And, and whether or not we are in a nice building like this, or we're meeting under a big tent somewhere, or at some places that I've been in Ecuador in a bamboo, basically a bamboo building. It doesn't matter. God's there because He's with His people. God indwells His people. Second Corinthians 6.16 puts it this way. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And the answer there would be none. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. When we become Christians, we believe that Jesus died for us. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. We are part of the church, which is all the Christians everywhere. All the Christians, all time. That's the church. Now we worship and celebrate in buildings that have all kinds of shapes and sizes. All kinds of languages are represented. But we are the church. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of the church of God. Question becomes, how do we show that in our lives? How do we show that Christ lives in us? Does anybody even notice Anybody ever see when they look at Mark Kieft? Oh, wow, that's interesting. I wonder why he does that, or I wonder why he acts like that. I wonder why he talks that way. And I'm assuming those things would be good things I've done and said. <laughs> How do we show the presence of God in the temple? How do we show that? Um, are we growing and building in our Christian life? Or are we content with, hey, the foundation's there. The altar's built. What more do we need? Maybe we need to honestly look at some stuff that needs to kind of be moved. Maybe there's some rubble, some things that have come into our lives and we say, okay, Lord, help me clean this out. But we need to face honestly who we are and whether or not we are representing God in the way that he wants us to. Will we honestly face the rubble of relationships that are broken where we don't even want to tolerate the other person in any way? Will we honestly face the rubble of a broken down mind that is not being renewed? Maybe our mind is, is a mess and maybe we need to be transformed by the renewing power of the Word of God. Will we honestly face the rubble of a broken down body that is not being cared for. And that may be someone else, or maybe we're not doing what we're supposed to do. But you need to remember, it's God's temple. 
And if I take care of myself, then God can use me more. Um, and just there's so many applications here. I'm just going to let you continue to make those on your own. Uh, we are the temple of God. We are a showcase, if you will, of God's presence. The question is, are we being held back by something going on in our lives? If there is, let's get that right with God and get back in fellowship with Him. You need to ask the Lord to clean up any rubbish or rubble in our lives and help us to grow and build for Him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for Your Word and thank You for the power of Your Word. Thank You for the fact that even in the book of Haggai, as we're looking at it, there's so many things that we can learn, so many things that we can apply. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you'd help me in this next week. If there are things that need to be taken care of, rubble that needs to be thrown out, please help me to see it and give me the strength to do it. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters. And at the same time, Lord, help us to focus on you. Help us to see what's going on all around us in light of you and your word. We ask this in your name. Amen.